Remember when we could fly places? Uh, over the summer, we could, we could go to a different city. We could go even sometimes to a different country. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, but it feels like a distant memory now. Uh, Anne and I uh, flew to Italy a few years back. And when we were walking around Rome, uh, seeing the sights, it was really obvious to anyone who was observing us um, that we weren't from there, that we were just visiting. I was wearing uh, my backpack on the front of my chest uh, to kind of avoid pickpockets. I had my phone out um, that was doubling as a GPS and a camera. Uh, I didn't speak the language. Um, it was clear to anyone who was looking at us that we were just visiting. And if you consider yourself a Christian today, and somehow uh, someone who knew nothing about Christianity um, had a window into your life for a week, and they could just watch your behavior, they could observe the way you spent your time, the, what you said, um, your habits, what would they conclude about your beliefs? What would they write down in their notebook about you? Now, after that week or so of watching you, if that person who, again, knew nothing about Christianity picked up a Bible and flipped to 1 Peter, what would they surmise about Christianity? What would they learn? They would quickly see that Christians are called to be a strange bunch indeed. And as we've been hearing the last several months in this, in this book of 1 Peter, that he basically teaches that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christians are given a living hope, a hope that's imperishable, a hope that doesn't fade with time. And because of this living hope in Jesus, Peter says that we will inevitably, at times, stand out in a crowd. In our culture, we will stick out. We will be strange in some ways. And our post-Christian world uh, is beginning to mirror more and more the pre-Christian world that Peter was writing to. So you see, he was writing to Christians that were spread across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he was telling them, even though they were being pressed and persecuted and reviled for their faith, he was telling them to hold on. And Peter says over and over again in his letter to these suffering Christians, that they were to conceive of themselves, to think of themselves as sojourners, as resident aliens in this world. So home for Christians is not so much a place as it is a person. God, it means that God is our true home and that Asheville or Mills River or Hendersonville is actually our home away from home. And Peter shows how God as our true home, it really transforms the way that we move through the world together. And here in chapter 4, where we are today, we see that Christians exhibit uh, three particular things as a result of knowing where our true home is. We are called to a peculiar attitude, a different lifestyle, and a gracious hospitality. An attitude, a lifestyle, and hospitality. Um, I invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's word with those things in mind. Our central text for today is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 
Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. All right, so first thing we're going to look at is a peculiar attitude that Peter calls Christians to have. Take a look again at verse 1 with me. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So Peter tells us to arm ourselves, to prepare ourselves for a battle of a certain kind. You see, the weapon that one wields in any sort of warfare reveals the nature of the conflict reveals the nature of the conflict. So if you were to go uh, squirrel hunting, right, which people do around here, I've heard, you don't take a bazooka. It's effective, but totally unnecessary and illegal, by the way. Um, The weapon that we, that Peter calls us to bear, is the same mindset as our suffering Savior. And another way that it's translated is to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Christ who suffered for you. So if you're a Christian this morning, what is, what is your attitude towards suffering for your faith? Think about that question. What's my attitude, if I'm a Christian today, what's my attitude towards suffering for what I believe? Recently, um, Anne and I were uh, discussing this virtual baby shower that she had had. Yeah, that's a thing now. Um, Zoom baby showers. And she was having a, uh, this with some high school friends of hers. And everybody else, um, sort of part of the, the, the baby shower was going around the horn and telling the future mom why they thought she was going to be a good mom. And most of the comments uh, revolved around how athletic she was, um, how fun she was, and you see, she was a great athlete in high school, and she had a really fun personality. And 
And so that's kind of what they emphasize for her. You're fun. You're athletic. You're going to be a great mom. But Anne's encouragement was a little different. She said, you know, your years of struggle to have children would serve to make you a good mom. You see, her friend had undergone rounds of fertility treatments and multiple failed pregnancies over the last several years. She had suffered greatly before becoming a mother. And that is what will help her weather the storms that are coming. Motherhood will involve suffering, and her attitude going into it should anticipate that. As Christians, we need to have the mindset that suffering is part of our walk and one of the main ways that God makes us look more and more like himself. And so it's not something we should avoid like the plague, pun intended. That means that we follow Jesus not in, just in his vindication and glory, but also in his suffering. We follow Jesus in all of his life, not just our favorite parts of his life and ministry. We need to make sure our attitudes line up with Christ, who expected, who anticipated to suffer for obeying his Father and loving his enemies. We must allow his words and actions to shape our attitudes so that our lifestyles follow suit. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage, that the Christ-like attitude towards suffering um, forms in us a new lifestyle. Look with me, starting at the end of verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter, Peter here is not saying that Christians cease from sin in this life. I want to make that clear. But he is saying that the time is past to live for our passions. And that word passion uh, it shows up a couple times in this passage. And this word means having an over-desire, an over-desire for good things. Tim Keller writes this, that the main problem that our heart has is not so much desires for bad things, but our over-desires for good things. So Peter is not saying that we won't deal with our desire anymore, but we follow a different script from our culture's propensity towards individualism and self-centeredness and sexual infidelity and even materialism. One pastor had some comments above about this list of vices in verse 3. When you read that, you might just go, oh, I just, I can't really relate to that. I, I don't really think that speaks about me and my situation. I can kind of remove myself from that list of vices. And this is what he said. He said, the challenge with this list in verse 3 is that it feels incredibly over the top, right? It presents a problem that 
many people have self-control and discipline to regulate ourselves from extreme licentious uh, living. And so this person is often, though, this is what his insight was, a person that says, I can kind of keep my distance because I have somewhat, some level of control over my urges, over my cravings. And he says, this person is often furthest from God. This is a person who lives for themselves and their passions, but listen in, but has enough self-awareness and morality to not be aware that they are still living for themselves. Most have a, and I'm almost done, most have a strong moral compass that keep us from extremes and keep us safe. And yet that compass's magnetic north is self-centered. It's not until one sees who Jesus is that our true north begins to point away from ourselves and to God and to other people for the first time. And I want to just admit that when I, when I think about my own heart, my own propensity to sort of distance myself from this idea that I have over-desires and that I too can be just as self-centered as anyone, I bristle to think about how selfish and materialistic and approval-hungry that I would be if not for Jesus. I know I could hear some amens um, through, the, through the camera for the Christians watching this. If not for Jesus, I don't even want to think about what kind of person I would be. I struggle with these same idols of materialism, consumerism, individualistic kind of self-centeredness, just like anyone else. But I know that God is changing me and has not given up on his project to make me more like his son, Jesus. And through his spirit and through the word and through his people, the church, Jesus is at work in me and in this walk that I share with him. And one uh, theologian may have heard referenced at Grace before, uh, philosopher Jamie Smith says this, conversion is not a solution. Conversion is not a magical transport home, some kind of flu powder to heaven. Conversion doesn't pluck you off the road. It changes how you travel. Did you hear that? Because of Jesus, we're not plucked away from the struggle of moving through life, the road of life, but we travel differently. And we are given a new compass in Christ that begins to point to him, a little closer to him, and a little more towards others, and off of ourselves more and more and more by his Spirit. We now know where we're going. We're going towards Jesus, and he's returning he is our true home. And in John 14, Jesus is speaking with his disciples in his final night uh, before his trial and execution. And they're worried. They're anxious because the one they were following, the one that they finally felt like they had belonging and meaning and a sense of purpose was leaving them. And listen to their conversation. Jesus is talking to his troubled believers and followers. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that I may also, that where I am, I may, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying to his troubled disciples who are worried that their, their Savior is going away. Their, their true home is leaving. They're going to be orphans again. They're going to be homeless spiritually again. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to go prepare a home for you. And I will bring it with me when I return. He is the way to God, our true home and life. The way, the truth, and life. Jesus says, I'm the way to him. The one you've been longing for. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that, the, that knowing, simply knowing where home is, that it's in God, that it's in, through Christ, does not actually make life easier. We are, whether we're religious or irreligious, still on this tenuous journey called life. And Jamie Smith goes on to say that some are endlessly exhausted. So there's sort of two ways to travel this road called life. He says some are endlessly exhausted trying to locate a home, a place of true rest and belonging. And that's where idols lead, making good things into ultimate things. And that's what we see in Peter's list. But he goes on, but there's another fatigue that comes from knowing where home is and realizing that you're not quite there yet. The first is a baseline aimlessness and an endless quest for home. And the second is a weariness of being en route, burdened by trials and distracted a thousand byways and exhausted by temptations that sucker you into forgetting where home is. He's saying a compass shows you uh, where to go, but we still have to walk, and the journey is hard. You may remember uh, the person, uh, the late Chuck Colson, who um, converted to Christianity in the midst of the Nixon-Watergate scandal. And before he was a Christian, he had thought power Power was where home, that sense of home was. And he did anything, even broke the law, to get it. But it ultimately left him wanting, and in prison, of course. And when he converted to Christianity, uh, many sneered at his conversion. But after years of caring for prisoners like himself, the laughter began to die down a bit, and, and people began to see an authentic and respect an authentic change in him. Something had happened in his life. And he spent the rest of his days working to, to share the love of Christ with those who were in prison. And it wasn't, though, smooth sailing for him. His life wasn't easy after his conversion. But again, Jesus changed the way that he traveled, and people took notice. 
Peter says uh, in verse 6 that the gospel was preached so that we might live in the Spirit the way that God does. We stand out for our lifestyle and our attitude that we belong to Christ. And it means that we'll part ways with people who demand that we see that this world is all there is. And we surprise others because we don't follow our hearts, even if it, even if it might mean that they put us down or refuse to promote us. When they see a marked difference in how we journey through life, we may be threatened. For some across the world, put in prison or even killed like many of our brothers and sisters in China. We are strange travelers and it, it will always show up in our lifestyles, not just our attitudes. And as pilgrims on the way, we are called finally to a gracious hospitality. And that's my last point. Gracious hospitality. Let's look at verse 7 and read to the end. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So verse 7 is, is the key to, to the rest of the passage. Like in other parts of his letter, Peter uh, situates Christian ethics eschatologically or, or with the end in mind. The end of all things is at hand. Your true home is on its way, Peter is telling them. Therefore, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Therefore, love one another and love them earnestly. Be hospitable and serve with grace. Jesus will return in the future and that shapes how we live now. And that much has been true for 2,000 years. I want you to notice something that Peter commands us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, this comes up earlier in the, in the letter, um, but it basically means keep your heads, keep your heads about the end. We're not to set dates. We're to be ready. We're not to withdraw from society. We're to go deeper in and to proclaim his excellencies, no matter the cost. We're not to panic. We're to pray. And in the rest of the verses that follows, we see that hospitality is sort of sandwiched uh, between earnest love and this call to Christian service, to love one another in word and deed. And I want to I focus on hospitality before we close. What, what is hospitality? Well, the Greek word is xenophilia. And that should ring a bell because it's the opposite of xenophobia, which means fear of strangers. Xenophilia is, you guessed it, love of strangers. And I really appreciate uh, this one author's definition um, of what hospitality uh, is uh, according to Christian theology. And she sort of sums it up in one sentence. Listen in. She says, hospitality is making strangers into neighbors and neighbors family of God. 
Hospitality is making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family of God. So Peter is saying that our love for strangers is a foretaste of our home to come. It's, it's a foretaste. It's a foreshadowing. The way we love people we don't know very well, people that aren't like us, people that we might breeze past normally, that's, that's, a, that's a sign. The way we treat them is a sign and should be a sign of our true home to come. But how can we practically show hospitality, right? Because in your mind, it's ringing in your ears, making meals, opening your doors, opening up your home, right? And how can we practically do that in the time of COVID-19? The pandemic, right, has thrown multiple roadblocks in our sort of normal strategies uh, for hospitality, right? Opening up our homes and our church home uh, is not so easy anymore. And for me, though, I think the pandemic has helped me to see just how much I long for other people to be in my home. It's helped me long to be in this room with you instead of preaching to a camera. This pandemic has shown me how much I need other people besides my, albeit wonderful, but can drive me crazy nuclear family. I love them, but I need, we need, we are designed for more than just our immediate family. We need each other. For me, though, before the pandemic, busyness was my favorite, my go-to default excuse for xenophobia, for refusing hospitality, for turning people away, for not inviting people in. But five months in this pandemic, I think, again, God is showing us and changing us to help us see just how great our need is for people. And I think, I think this is an opportunity for the watching world, the, the world that's, that's wandering, the world that is uh, so hungry for meaning and purpose that only God provides, this is an opportunity for us to go, we know who he is, we know the way, we know the truth, and his name is Jesus. Could it be that God is at work to chip away at our idols of our space and our time? Not to make too much of our home away from home, but to use our space, to use our gifts that he's given to us as stewards, household managers, and not owners. Not pretending like we're owners of the good gifts that he's given us to help fellow wanderers feel like they too belong. But the elephant in the room is that home is incredibly hard right now for all of us. For the parents watching this, your home is now a school. Your home is a gym. Your home is a restaurant. Your home is where you sleep. Your home is your office. I could go on. It's kind of like a really small Google headquarters, um, but it just doesn't, doesn't pay that well, right? Home is, is hard for parents, but it's not just hard for, for, for them. It's, it's hard for singles. Loneliness is pervasive right now. It's hard for widows and widowers. It's hard for roommates. It's hard for us all. 
You know, in actuality, we're all living in bubbles like we've never lived before. But how do we not shield ourselves from the suffering in our neighborhoods? You see, that's not what our God did. He was not xenophobic. He loved strangers. He left his home, his heavenly home, and he entered into our broken world filled with hate, filled with injustice, filled with pride, filled with materialism and consumerism and rampant selfism. He entered that world, our world. He left his perfect home, opened himself up to love us all the way to the cross. And again, that must be our attitude as well as we think about our homes, as we think about our lives. How can we open ourselves up a little bit more in the wake of this pandemic? How do we help people who are suffering just like us, maybe more than us? How could God use this time to foster bonds with hurting people down the street who you never used to have time for, at least you never used to make time for? Maybe it could be scheduling a dog walk if you have a dog, or maybe it could be a Zoom call with a neighbor who doesn't feel safe right now going out and being with others. I don't know. But just one practical idea for the married folks watching this. How could God be challenging you to be hospitable with your closest neighbors, your immediate family, without, and here's the key word, without grumbling? You know, when, when people come over to your house, or at least they used to, you would, we would clean the house, right? We would, we would make it look nice, at least sort of nice, presentable. Why? As a gift. To say, hey, this is part of my warm welcome, a clean house, some nice food, because we care about you. And I just want to speak to the dads who are watching this. Perhaps... You could do more for the sake of your wives who are wearing more hats than they ever have before. Maybe you could be hospitable to her and to your family. Maybe I could. Oh, and without grumbling. God help us. But he will. We lean on him and he will help us love and be hospitable even to our closest neighbors. And to close... It sort of comes out in the English, but all of the imperatives, all of the commands that Peter gives are in the plural form. He says, we love generously and forgive. We are to be hospitable. We are to, be, to serve and to steward the gospel together, together. And again, Jamie Smith says this. Like Israel, like migrants everywhere, we could never brave this treacherous road alone. Conversion is joining a caravan not setting out alone. So we're on this journey with Jesus together. And may we give the watching world a reason to believe in our strange but glorious home that awaits us in Christ. Amen.